heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the voice of a nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. And I want to do something a little bit different today. I'm a big believer, I always have been, that in order to have a truly viable opinion on any topic, the more complicated the topic, the more important this is, the more the, the, the more controversial the topic, I think the more important this is. I want to talk about a topic, and I want to give the arguments on both sides of that topic. I want to pick an argument that is controversial. Um, my goal here is not to change anybody's mind, and I'm probably, this is a highly controversial topic. It's something people get very, very inflamed about, so I'm going to apologize in advance if, if that happens. I'm not trying to make anybody angry. I'm going to give both sides of the argument. I want everybody here to understand what both sides of the debate sound like. And I want to look at it from different elements. I want to look at it from a moral perspective. I'm going to look at it at a legal perspective. I'm actually to the legal perspective first because it leads into the moral perspective uh, very effectively. We're going to look at it from an economic perspective, and then we're going to look at it from a political perspective. Uh, I'm not going to choose an easy one. I thought maybe I'd do something like welfare or the minimum wage or what the tax rate should be. But no, I'm not going to go to any of those relatively softball topics. I'm going to hit the one everybody's thinking about right now. I'm going to talk about abortion. So let's talk about abortion. First of all, I want to look at the, the legal argument. I want to look at the legal argument that Roe versus, made, Roe versus Wade made. And then I want to look at the legal argument uh, that Joe Biden kind of fumbles around with. And I say fumbles around with. He actually, I'm going to give him some credit his argument is much stronger. The one he tries to make, I should say, is much stronger than the one Roe versus Wade made. And it's very illustrative. The difference between those two, I think you'll find very, very interesting and very, very illustrative. So let's talk first about the argument Roe versus, made, Roe versus Wade made. Boy, there's a tongue twister for you, huh? <laughs> Roe versus Wade said that a woman's right to an abortion which they said exists until the baby is viable outside the womb. And they said it's a unilateral right until the baby is viable outside the womb. They said it stems from a right to privacy that they said exists in the, in the uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, that's a pretty shoddy argument. There is no right to secrecy anywhere in the 14th Amendment. So it's a pretty shoddy argument right out of the gate. From there, they say that having an abortion is a very personal decision that somebody should be able to make in consultation with a doctor in private. It should not be a public decision that is made by the public at large. It's a, a private decision, they said. And that private decision is a decision that, of course, a woman has a right to make up until viability. That, too, is a very shoddy argument because the right to have an abortion, to have a medical procedure, does not logically stem from a right to privacy. And you can't have a right to privacy. If there were a right to privacy, then it wouldn't be the abortion that would be protected. It would be people finding out that somebody had one. 
And there's no right to that, because if you do something that you're embarrassed about, and you don't want anybody else to know about it, and you don't tell anyone, but somehow somebody finds out and they begin telling people, you don't have a right to tell people they can't talk about you. That's absurd. There's never been any such right, and there isn't such a right today. So the concept of a right to privacy is shoddy to begin with. Roe versus Wade. I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of people on the left that think Roe versus Wade is the most wonderful thing since peanut butter and jelly. It was a very, very shoddy argument. And as I said, Joe Biden, of all people, is actually not really coherently, but semi-articulated a much stronger argument. And I'm not attorney, by the way. Somebody's going to listen to this and say, what right does he have to talk about this? Does he have a law degree? No. Full disclosure, I do not have a law degree. I'm just somebody who has read an awful lot on the topic, some of it written by lawyers, and I'm somebody who has studied the Constitution in some detail. So this being a constitutional matter, I feel I can talk about it some, even though I'm not an attorney. And I got to tell you, if I was an attorney, or if I was talking to an attorney, I would probably think the attorney was dumber than a box of rocks. Not because all attorneys are, but because so many attorneys sub subscribe to schools of thought uh, that I find just, just morally reprehensible. The whole concept of a living document, I find that morally reprehensible. It's an excuse not to interpret law, but to ignore it. So if, if I were an attorney, I would, I would tell you to turn this off. I'm not worth, probably not worth listening to. There are attorneys out there that are very good attorneys out there, but the number of attorneys that would say that the Constitution should be interpreted somewhat strictly, an originalist interpretation, are highly outnumbered by the attorneys that think that the Constitution is a living document that means whatever they seem to think it should mean at any given point in time. So not going off on a tangent there, I just, I am not an attorney. Much stronger argument for the right to an abortion is the argument from the Ninth Amendment, not the 14th, that Roe versus Wade used, but the Ninth Amendment. The argument there is that there are rights that are not set apart in the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is not an exhaustive list of the natural rights that we have, and that the listing of specific natural enumerated rights does not prevent other rights that are not enumerated from existing. In other words, you've got natural rights that the Constitution doesn't list. Very obvious one, the freedom of association. Nobody can force you to associate with people you don't want to associate with. You can't be forced to take people into your house. You can't be forced to go to a social uh, engagement with people that you don't want to go to a social engagement for. Now, obviously, there are some ways that particular right can be abused, but then there are ways any right can be abused. The fact that somebody can abuse a right doesn't mean the right doesn't exist. The one such natural right that is not listed in the Constitution, another one I should say, is the right to have a medical procedure performed on you if it only affects you and the doctor performing that medical procedure. So, for example, if I had a wart on my face and I wanted to go, I don't have a wart in my face, by the way, but if I did have a wart in my face and I wanted to go to the doctor and have that wart removed, does the federal government of the United States have any right to tell me that I cannot get that wart removed? I also have a natural right to refuse medical treatments. If I like my wart, I can keep it. If I don't want to take the jab, the government has no right to tell me I have to take the jab. I know they tried. I know there was a lot of talk about that. At one point, it actually was mandated. But that mandate was shot down. And that mandate was shot down because the Supreme Court rightfully said, actually, I think it was a lower court, 
I don't remember if this one got all the way to the Supreme Court, but the courts very, very rightfully shot it down as, uh, as, as a bridge too far, pushing the Ninth Amendment too far. You do have a natural right to refuse to have a medical procedure performed on you. And also, the Nuremberg uh, laws, the Nuremberg rules have came out of, of, of that. So, yeah, there is a natural right to refuse medical procedures or to have medical procedures if those medical procedures only affect you. And this is where it starts getting interesting. Because when we look at having a wart removed from my face or having cancer removed, if I have cancer and my doctor thinks surgery is the best first course of action, I the government doesn't have any right to deny me the ability to have a doctor remove that cancer. That's a medical procedure. It only affects me. The cancer doesn't have any rights. If I have a wart in my face, does the wart have any rights? Of course not. There's no rights to a wart. But what about a fetus? And now it just became a moral argument, didn't it? Now it's not about what the law says. Now it's about what is a fetus. Now there are some people that have a hard time defining what a fetus is. You know, there's some people today who have a hard time defining what a woman is. If you don't know what a woman is, you likely don't know what a fetus is. So, you know, there are a lot of people that I think misunderstand that nature of the argument. What is a fetus? Is it a human being or a mass of cells? Is it a baby or is it not a baby until it's born? More importantly and more fundamentally, since we're talking about legal arguments at this point and not moral arguments, the two become very interrelated when we get to this point. We have just gotten to the crux of the issue. At what point does a fetus have natural rights? And this is an interesting question because natural rights, we believe, as, as Christians, and the Constitution takes it as a matter of course that natural rights don't come from the government. They come from God. God gave you your natural rights. And what God has giveth, the government cannot taketh away. The government can take taxes. They can't take your natural rights. So to the degree that a baby or a fetus has natural rights, those natural rights have to be respected. And the mother cannot possibly have. One of the things about natural rights, you have no natural right to the labor, the property, you have no natural right, really, to harm anyone in any way, which includes forcing them to commit labor, which includes taking their property. You could pass a law saying that you have to give some of your income and we're going to use that for welfare. And then you can say, well, now people have welfare. You might even say people have a right to welfare. Fine. You can say that. The government can make that the law. It is the law. There is no natural right to welfare. There's a difference here between having a right and having a natural right. So you can have, if, if the fetus is a living, breathing human being, I probably shouldn't say breathing because it is a fetus. If it is a living, breathing, if it is a living human being, then it has natural rights. And if it has natural rights, then whether or not a woman should have or does have the right to an abortion it can't possibly be a natural right as it affects the right of that other human being, the natural rights of that other human being. And what more fundamental natural right is there than the right to live? At the same time, is it a human being five seconds after, conce after conception? 
Many people think so. And I'm not here to tell you that it's not. I'm presenting the argument on both sides. I'm not trying to... to my opinion on the matter doesn't really matter in this particular. I do have one, but it, that's not what this particular episode is about. We're exploring all sides of this very, very complicated issue. So it really becomes a very, very complicated question about not when life begins. A wart is its not a life under itself in terms of having any sentience, but it is a, a living mass of tissue, at least until it's cut off and dies. A cancer. It's a living tissue. It's not a healthy living tissue. It's not something we want to have. But if you were to find just a clump of growing cells on Mars, you'd say, oh my God, look, we found life on Mars. So yeah, cancer is, in that sense, it's a life. That's not its own life. It's a part of you, but it is living tissue. So to the degree that a fetus is nothing more than a clump of cells attached to the womb of a woman, yeah, she has a natural right to abort it. To the degree that it is not just a clump of cells attached to the uterus of a woman, she may have a right to abort it, depending on the rules and the laws where she lives. She doesn't have and cannot have a natural right to do so. So the legal question of abortion is really indistinguishable from the moral question of abortion, which is at what point is a fetus, a human being, that has natural rights, not given by government, but given by God. And let's separate separate religion out a little bit from this too, because we do have, I don't want to say there's necessarily a separation of church and state, because I think that, that phrase, which is not in the Constitution, that was a Supreme Court decision, I think that's way, way, way overused. Now, what I tell people is there is a separation between church and state that's a great way to look at the First Amendment's uh, freedom of religion. But it's a freedom of religion, not a freedom from religion. That's critical. It is there to protect religion from the state, and by extension from other religions that the state might try to enforce upon the, the public. It is not an infringement upon religion. That's that's a critical distinction. So, So I'm free to talk publicly about my faith, I am free to allow my faith to inform my morality. And of course, morality can affect culture, it can affect law, it can affect all these different things. So there is no separation of church and morality, or of church and culture. And there is no separation between culture or morality and state. Your morals can drive law, absolutely. Our morals, can they drive law all the time. What is a law? other than somebody taking a piece of morality and codifying it. It may not always be good morality, but it's somebody saying, this is the way it should be, that's how we're going to make it that way. Well, who decides without morality, without culture, how do we decide how it should be? So, yeah, there, there, we, we should not just say the Bible says don't do it, it should be the law. But if we believe that that's moral, and we believe, or immoral in this case, and we believe in the culture that, that says something is good or something is bad or what have you, yeah, we can codify that. Just a question of whether or not enough people have that belief to pass the law. So with abortion, again, the real question, when is it a human life? And, and you know, as a libertarian, very, very easy, and a small L libertarian, I'm not in the libertarian party, I am a Republican, but as a small L libertarian, 
my view on it is that the father, it's not the father doesn't have any rights. All this talk about the father doesn't have any right to tell a woman what to do with her body. Well, no, you don't. A father doesn't have any more right to tell a prospective mother, a man, I should say, doesn't have any more right to tell a woman what to do with her body than a woman has to tell a man what to do with his body. A woman can't tell you whether or not you can shave. A woman can't tell you whether or not you should get a vasectomy. A woman can't tell you a great many things. You have a right to your body just as she has a right to hers. What you do medically is between you and your doctor. It's not between you and, and, and some, a third party, whether that's your wife or, or the president of the United States or whether that's the science, Anthony Fauci. And yes, I'm saying that facetiously. Note, I didn't call him a doctor, so I don't believe he's acting in that capacity. I think the capacity is acting in this as a politician and a very shrewd or very bad one at that. So, But, you know, a woman has a right to determine by herself what she's going to do with her body. If she's under 18, I'd say, you know, her parents have some say there too. At least legally they used to have that standing and they should they should still have that standing. You, you're, you're a child. Your parents, of course, are involved in those kinds of decisions. But a man doesn't have any right to tell a woman what to do with her body. But then does a father have the right to have a say in the raising of his child? Well, of course he does. He's got just as much right in the raising of his child as the mother does. It's, it's, the child is two parents, mother and father, two parents. So the, the father has every right to be involved in how their children are raised. Is it possible the father has some rights before the baby is born? Yeah, it's a baby. The idea that a man doesn't have any right whatsoever with regard to a baby that is growing in his wife or his girlfriend or or even somebody he just knocked up. Now, that's his baby. He's got as much of a right to, to the baby as, as the mother does. Uh, once it's born, at least. Well, what about five minutes before it's born? Now, we talked about five minutes after conception. Is it just a clump of cells or is it at that point already a human being? That's a moral question. Well, five minutes before birth, is it baby enough for the father to have any rights? That, again, is a moral decision. I was saying as a libertarian, I guess as a libertarian, my view is that the mother's rights outweigh the father's rights. I don't know about all the way through the pregnancy, but certainly early in the pregnancy. And I don't believe that the, uh, to me, there is a point in the pregnancy where very, very clearly we are talking about a living human being. And whether or not the mother's rights outweigh that living human being, well, that's a matter of debate. At some point during the development, that baby's rights, I believe, outweigh the mother's. So when the father's rights catch up, they never are going to pass the mother's rights. So I don't think that's necessarily even important. But at some point, that baby has natural rights not given to it by government, but by God. And again, I want to get to the religion thing. The founders weren't necessarily thinking of the Christian God. And they didn't even say God. They actually said by the creator or by our creator. And when we think about the concept of a creator, that doesn't have to be God. That could be natural selection. That could be just providence of chance, as Richard Dawkins would put it. Whatever you think is responsible for the universe existing. We know there was a creation of one kind or another because 
the Big Bang. We, they can actually tell us when and where that happened. So we know that this universe was created at a specific time, at a specific place, and that it's been expanding out ever since. Whatever you think caused that, that is the source of your natural rights. Doesn't have to be God. Doesn't have to be Allah. Doesn't have to be Jesus. Doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be anything religious at all. You could be completely scientific and still say, yeah, we may not have a, a entity as a creator, but we certainly had the Big Bang and the natural rights, they come from that. So fine, natural rights don't come from the government. They come from something beyond that. They are just yours. And that is the point there. So the whole thing from a moral perspective is tied into when that developing fetus, that, that baby, becomes a human being. And then once it's a human being, it has natural rights of its own, and the mother may have rights, but at that point she can no longer have natural rights. So it would have been interesting. Somebody, I think, at some point is going to take the Ninth Amendment abortion argument to the Supreme Court and is going to make the argument that early in the pregnancy particularly, you're not killing a baby, you're not killing a human being, you are killing a clump of cells that have no brain, they have no heart, they have no fingers, they don't have all of these things. At some point it's more than that, but early on you can make a pretty good argument that it, it really is just a mass of, cell, of cells, and yeah, it's alive. And yeah, it is a growing embryo that will develop into something, but it hasn't done that yet. You can make an argument there. That, I'm not going to say that it's a completely sound argument, and I'll get into that too. But you can make, that is the strongest argument that somebody can make for a natural right to an abortion. Not saying it's correct. I'm just saying that if you want to look for the strongest argument it is possible to make to defend a natural right to an abortion, it doesn't go through the 14th Amendment. Roe versus Wade was flawed because they that's what they used. It would go through the 9th Amendment. And if that's such a strong argument, I guess the next obvious question is, why didn't the Supreme Court at the time of Roe versus Wade use that argument to defend a natural right to an abortion, at least until viability? The answer there is telling. This is probably the most under-talked about thing in the history of Supreme Court decisions, the reason why they did something they knew didn't have legal grounds when they had such an obvious avenue that would have legal grounds. And the reason is very simple. It was a left-leaning Supreme Court at the time. A conservative court would probably not have would probably not have made the decision, the, 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 the opinion that was made in Roe versus Wade. They probably would have said, uh, no, no natural right to an abortion. And they certainly would have made that if they would have known there would be 66 million of them. The leading cause of death in the United States is abortion, if you count that as a cause of death. They would certainly not have allowed that to happen. So, at any rate, they didn't use the Ninth Amendment because as left-leaning members of the Supreme Court, they didn't believe natural rights existed. So they had this interesting legal conundrum where, yeah, we want to create this natural right to have an abortion, but we don't want to have other 
natural right. We want the natural rights only to be those things that are listed in the Constitution. We don't want to make a Supreme Court opinion that codifies, or that, that not codifies, but that asserts by the Supreme Court that there are natural rights not listed in the Bill of Rights or, or anywhere else in the Constitution. Very important to them not to make an opinion that would be used then as legal precedent going forward that natural rights not listed in the Constitution exist. Well, of course they do. The Ninth Amendment tells us they do. But that Supreme Court was not going to make that opinion because they don't want natural rights to exist. I don't say they, they didn't want natural rights to exist. Joe Biden makes the argument because one thing, a positive I'll say, for he does believe in natural rights. Am I a Biden fan? No. But I'll give him some credit there. He does believe in the existence of natural rights. So at least in that sense, he's on the right side of something. So the Supreme Court, they weren't going to go there. They were not going to, to do something, to put an opinion in place that other courts would use and that uh, would become a part of our legal tradition that there are natural rights not listed in the Constitution's Bill of Rights. Now think about that. I mean, seriously, think about that. They wanted to create a natural right, but they wanted to create just one specific natural right without inferring that there were any others. Because of that, the Ninth Amendment was completely closed off to them. They couldn't have used the Ninth Amendment had they wanted to without also... Now, specific rights, what those natural rights are, they didn't have to decide. They could have used the Ninth Amendment and still left that out there. But it was definitely, it would have been a big step in the direction of the Supreme Court recognizing that there were things government cannot do that are not codified in the Bill of Rights. So they couldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. Which brings us back to the moral question of when human rights are inferred upon a baby. Of course, people on the left want to say, or those who are in favor of abortion, I don't want to see those on the left in this particular debate, people who are in favor of abortion want to say that it begins, well, depending on, certainly not at conception. And then you have various opinions going from, from conception up to birth. You know, some people believe that it was, there are actually people out there that believe until somebody is self-aware, until they understand concepts such as the ownership of property, this is mine, that they're not truly a person and that you should be able to abort them. Now, depending on who you talk to, the age where a child truly becomes self-conscious in that way is between three and four. A three-year-old generally does not have that concept yet. A four-year-old generally does have that concept. So there are people on the extreme. The extreme out there isn't partial birth abortion. That is extreme. But there are people who are more extreme than partial birth abortion. There are people out there that want to allow mothers, not fathers, mothers, to kill children as young as three years old. That should scare the hell out of you. It's unfortunately true. I don't know how many there are. That, again, is the extreme and on the other side, let's not forget that the concept of life beginning at conception and a natural right to life was for a very long time used by the Catholic Church to ban, not by law in America, obviously, but the church, the Catholic Church, for a very long time banned the use of contraceptions. 
So you couldn't you couldn't use a, a condom or, or or take the pill. You if if you were going to have sex, you had to play the dice or roll the dice and see whether or not you were going to get somebody pregnant. Because they considered sex to be something you do for procreation. To them, there was no reason to have sex other than to create a baby. And as a consequence, if you were having sex and you were denying the possible conceived baby, the opportunity to be conceived, they would say that that was a moral sin and you should not be allowed to do that. Uh, Catholic Church, I don't think, still has that position. Uh, a lot of Catholics do not use birth control, but I don't think it's still the position of the Catholic Church that you should not be able to. But for a long time, that was a prohibition. So if you want to look at the other extreme of the abortion debate, it's not that you cannot have an abortion ever at all. That's that's Some would say that's extreme. Some would say that's how it should be. I'm not here to tell you which it is. But understand the argument actually extends before conception. There are people out there that don't believe that the right to contraceptives should exist. That if you're going to have sex, you should be rolling the dice. Um, and that's, you know, it's hard to imagine that extreme. It's also hard to imagine the idea of, of somebody thinking that you can kill a three-year-old. So both of the extremes are, are way out there in Looneyville. And uh, I'm obviously not advocating either one of those extremes. I'm just telling you where the extremes in the debate are. So with that, we talked a lot about medicine, a lot about doctors, a lot about health decisions. Well, we've got health decisions we can make every day in our lives, and uh, I know we have sponsors that want to talk to you about that. So we're going to take a brief break. Back on the other side, we're going to pick up more on abortion. We're going to look at it from the economic uh, perspective. We're going to look at it from the political perspective. So don't go anywhere. we got a lot more show. we got a lot more to talk about. And we'll see you after the break. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome 
While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. Welcome back, everyone. It's always nice hearing from our sponsors, all of the amazing products they have that can help us stay healthy. But I hope you're not just using things you can buy. Malcolm, of course, always talks about going for a walk, seeing the trees and the sky, breathing the fresh air. I personally like to lift weights. I also do some cardio. We all do, of course, whatever works for us. But it's important to stay healthy, and staying healthy means staying active. So, got to keep an active lifestyle. Whatever it is that works for you, whether you want to ride an echo bike like I do after lifting weights, whether you want to go for a long walk through the trees, whatever you want to do, do something. Don't just sit at your desk all day after work, eat bonbons, watch TV. Do something. Try to stay active, please. Try to stay healthy. Uh, when these pathogens, these car- these uh, these, these uh, diseases come in, COVID-19, whatever it may be, the healthier of a human being you are, the better of a chance you have getting through it. So please, people, please stay healthy, stay active, maintain a healthy lifestyle. My wife yells at me all the time about my lifestyle uh, because she says I like to eat things that are unhealthy. When I met my wife 12 years ago, I was in amazing shape. I was 39 years old. I was in the best shape of my life at 39. I was healthier at 39 than I was in terms of of physical strength and, and, and running and everything else. I was healthier at 39 than I was when I was in the Marine Corps at 19, if you can believe that. But it's true. I probably wasn't as fast as I was when I was 19, but I was physically in better shape. And that was in spite of the fact that there was a Wendy's on the way between my uh, my home and the gym. It was literally pulling out of the gym. I'd go into the Wendy's parking lot. I was eating four or five Baconators a week, which is ridiculous. Baconators, delicious sandwich, but it's not very healthy. So at one point, I'd get a free trainer once a year, and a trainer asked me what it was, what my goal was, and I said, I want to stay in the same shape I'm in right now in spite of the fact that I eat four or five Baconators a week. So... Got to improve your diet. As I've gotten older, I've had to improve mine. My wife's always on me about it. Please, diet, exercise, and buy some of the amazing products that our sponsors put out there so that you can take care of yourself. And now back to the show. So we talked about the legal implications of abortion, or the legal arguments, I should say, for and against the right for an abortion. We talked about the moral arguments for and against the right to have an abortion. One thing I left out, the legal one, is when we start getting to questions of when does a baby become a baby? When is it more than a clump of cells? When is it, or is it as a clump of cells a human being? When does a fetus become a human being? Is that conception? Is that birth? Is that sometime in the middle? Is it when it has a heartbeat? Is it when it can feel pain? Is it when it has fingers and toes? Is it when it responds to stimuli? At what point is it a human being with natural rights of its own? And that's an interesting question. You start getting into other questions, though, such as who should be able to decide that? Now, 
obviously, it would be a medical question, in my opinion at least, that is a medical question more than a religious question, and it's a medical question, this is my opinion, it's fine if you think that it's a religious question, that life begins at conception, totally get it, totally valid position to take, and I'm not telling you not to change, I'm not telling you to change your mind, I'm not here today, sometimes I am here to change your mind, I am not here today to change your mind, I'm just laying out the different arguments. But if you do believe that at some point it becomes a human, whether that's a conception or birth or somewhere in between, then somebody has to decide what that point is. And of course, medical doctors can give testimony as to when that point is. And there are a lot of medical doctors, they don't have all the same opinion. Priests can give, people and religious leaders can give opinion. They can give testimony for when they think it begins. You know, you can have all this testimony. At the end of the day, of course, it has to be judges that make that determination. But what judges should make that determination? Is that something that the Supreme Court should decide? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that based on the Tenth Amendment, the question of when a fetus becomes a human, or if it even needs to become a human, if it is a human at conception, when that is, in my opinion, that should be defined by the states. Each state should be able to define whether or not, uh, or, or at what point, a human being has natural rights. At what point a fetus is, becomes a human, or if it is a human, when it has natural rights. That is something the state should decide. Uh, the argument against it, obviously, is the same argument as all the other arguments against federalism, which is that some states might get it wrong. Now, I personally don't know why a woman in New York City would care what the laws in Arkansas or in Alabama or in Florida or in any state other than New York are. I don't think that's any of the federal government's business. I don't think it's the business of people in California with the laws in Michigan are. That's that's just me. But the argument against that is that if the right to choose is a fundamental right, then it has to be a fundamental right everywhere. You can't you can't have a fundamental right that is only fundamental in one place or in California or in New York or only in those states that choose to defend that right. If it's a fundamental right, they want it everywhere. So that's what they're pushing for. And abortion really, from an argument perspective, from a logical perspective, is not a good argument to, to it's not a good subject to make that argument with. If you want to talk about health care, if you want to talk about universal health care, that health care should be free for every American. Of course, not free. Somebody has to pay for it. But that we should pay for it collectively. And that the amount you pay for health care through taxes should be wholly unrelated to the amount of health care you need. If you want to make that argument, health care is a great place to make it. Because if California were to have universal health care, and Texas, for example, did not then all of these sick people would want to move to California to take advantage of the universal health care, and all of the healthy people would want to move to Texas to take advantage of the lower taxes. So it was something like that. The argument isn't there that it's a universal right that we have to provide everyone and Texas doesn't have the right to take that, that, that away. No, the argument there really is an economic argument. The argument there is that if California has universal health care and they're going to tax their people, say 20% more of their income, to pay for that universal health care. And incidentally, we spent 20% of the national income 
on health care. So if you wanted to nationalize health care and maintain the same quality, we would have to spend 20% of the national income on health care. That means everybody's taxes are going to have to go up. Not everybody necessarily going up the same amount, but we're going to have to take, we already spend a lot of money on health care. It's we already spend, uh, I don't know, what we spend as a percent of the national income on health care. I would guess probably 10%, just based on the fact that roughly half of health care is government provided or, or at least government funded through the VA, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and what have you. So there's already a lot of government money in Medicare. I would guess that it's probably about 10% because it's about half, and that's 20%, half of 20%, 10%. But Medicare doesn't pay as much and Medicaid pays even less. They don't pay as much as private health care, private health plans do. Medicare and Medicaid, one of the dirty little secrets there is that they don't cover the full cost of providing care, which means that those who have private insurance are actually already paying more to cover the cost of those on Medicare and Medicaid. But if, if you want to make the argument, the argument there really is, if California were to do it and not New, not Texas, all of the rich, all the all of the, the healthy people would go to Texas. All of the sick people would go to California, and the system would collapse. So that would be something that, for it to be successful, it has to be universally applied everywhere. You have to do it in such a way that people can't move out from underneath it. And that's the argument about you know, the, the the argument on the right about this would be people have the right to move with their feet or to vote with their feet rather. If you don't like the laws in the state you're in, move to a different state. Move to a state where you like the laws. If you don't like the schools where you live, move someplace that has good schools. If you don't like where you live, move. That would be the, the conservative argument. The argument on the other side, of course, is we have to fix all the schools. We can't let people move out from under good policy just because it costs more, blah, 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 blah. That's that's, so it's important to understand both sides. Probably pretty clear what side I'm on on this. I'm not trying to hide the side I'm on. I'm just trying to be faithful to both sides, even if, you know, maybe I sound a little, uh, maybe I sound a little bit uh, biased. Well, I, I am a little bit biased, but it doesn't mean that I'm giving you an inaccurate assessment of the other side's arguments. It just means that I don't agree with the other side's arguments. So please, I am trying to be fair. I, I am being fair. But when I say blah, 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 uh, I don't agree with the political left on this, and as a consequence, yeah, I can I can be as fair as I can be, but it's going to show. So that's that. But anyway, with abortion, it's a silly argument because somebody could go to another state. If you live in, in Florida and they ban abortion, if Georgia is legal there, you go to Georgia. If it's not legal in Georgia, you go to whatever state it's legal in. As long as abortion is legal in one state, and people have the means of going to that state to get it. Abortion is legal. It just might cost a little bit more because of the need to travel to the place where it's legal. Now, somebody's going to say, well, yeah, but Florida could pass a law saying it's illegal for a Florida resident to go to California to get an abortion. So then they go to California to get an abortion. They come home. Florida finds out they did it. And now they get arrested for having gotten an abortion in California. So it's not really something that something that you can do on a state-by-state -state basis. It doesn't really give people the ability to do that. They can't travel for it. Well, they kind of can, though, because the legality, I'm not a lawyer, and this is one that would be over my head. I can't tell you whether or not it would be legal for Florida 
to say that when you're in California, you can't do what's law. What's the law in California? I, I don't think they could do that even if... even I don't think it's legal for a state to ban what you do in another state. They can only ban what you do when you're within their jurisdiction. You, know, you can't say that you can't smoke marijuana in Michigan, and therefore if you go to Amsterdam, you can't smoke it there either. That Michigan can't do that. And I believe the same thing would be true among the states. But even if it wasn't, even if Florida could ban going to California to get an abortion, the federal government could step in and say, now hold on a second here. If they're changing states to get it, that's interstate commerce. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is actually a good use of interstate commerce. The Interstate Commerce Clause is literally something about, not just abortion, but abortion is a great example of the proper use of the Interstate Commerce Clause. So when we get into the economic arguments about abortion, that's obviously one of them. The primary economic arguments when it comes to abortion, one is, who are we trying to abort? In most cases, I think that the targeting has been, and this is this is a really sick thing about, about American history and, and, and about how abortion became such a big thing. Margaret Sanger was a devout racist. She wanted to exterminate the African-American people. She literally wanted to exterminate them. And since she couldn't exterminate them by going around and, and having them killed, she figured the next best thing would be to exterminate them through eugenics encourage them to have abortions. To her, the, the ideal would be if no African-Americans had babies, if they were all aborted. That was her, I don't want to say that was her goal because I think she knew that was unrealistic, but that was her dream. What she thought was realistic was reducing the birth rate in the African-American community to below the, I believe it's 2.2. I believe a birth rate needs to be 2.2 to have a steady population. What she thought was achievable was reducing the African-American birth rate below that level so that the number of African-Americans generation to generation would decline until at some point in her idealized universe there wouldn't be any African-Americans left. Now, I'm not saying that that is what people who are for abortion or in favor of the right to choose, I'm not saying that that's what they want today. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of people. I was raised in an atheist Democrat, liberal household. My parents both devout Democrats. They became more so as they got older. Uh, and and devout, my, my father more of an agnostic, my mother devout atheist. So I grew up, I became a Christian at four. I, I grew up uh, as, as a Christian in a devout atheist household. You can imagine some of the conversations that we had when I was growing up as a Christian and, and my parents hate Christianity. It was not to say I had bad parents or they were hard on me. No, I actually had pretty good parents. But that was a bone of contention my entire time growing up. So, yeah, crazy. But I, my parents certainly did not want to exterminate the African-American people. My parents, public school teachers, they taught me not to be racist. They Very, very important. My, my family, that's just not something. We, of course not. And I don't think that and I don't think very many people, I don't think anybody today, there are people out there who do. Obviously, there are racists and there are racists in both parties. But I don't think that's what the left is trying to do today. But that is what Margaret Sanger wanted to do. And it's hard to talk about abortion rationally. They talk about you can't talk about this without bringing up the history of slavery. Well, how can you talk about abortion then without talking about the history of Margaret Sanger and the original intent? of Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood wasn't about 
choosing when to be a parent. No, Planned Parenthood was about Margaret Sanger planning parenthood in terms of who could be a parent. Not the, not the mother deciding whether or not to have a baby. Margaret Sanger deciding what elements of society could have babies. That's what it was about. And it's hard to talk about that without... With, with, how do you separate? You, you can't talk about abortion from a, an economic perspective and not talk about that. It just it, it can't be done. Separating the, the genocidal intent of Planned Parenthood when it was founded is, is just as inseparable from the debate on abortion as the Holocaust is when talking about World War II or as slavery is when talking about the history of our country and it, you, you talking about particularly the Civil War. You can't talk about the Civil War and not talk about slavery. You cannot talk about World War II and not talk about the Holocaust. You cannot talk about abortion and not talk about Margaret Sanger's intent in creating Planned Parenthood, an organization that still exists to exterminate 13% of the American population. Can't do it. People, if somebody tries to tell you that that's not what it's about, well, maybe that's not what it's about today, but you cannot separate that aspect of the discussion from the economics surrounding abortion because that is what it started as and the organization Margaret Sanger created to exterminate the African-American people is still there. So if you want to have an abortion clinic, fine. But people, I'm very, very, this is something that touches very near and dear to my heart. Planned Parenthood should not exist. Get rid of it. If you want to form a new organization that does not have the same roots as Planned Parenthood, as long as it's legal, knock yourself out. Have, have some new organization grow. I don't care. But Planned Parenthood people, please. Margaret Sanger, was, was, she was as bad as Adolf Hitler. She was as bad as Joseph Stalin. She was as bad, maybe worse, than Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. I mean, what she wanted to do is so reprehensibly immoral. The notion that somebody would say her name in any positive light. How? So Hillary Clinton talking about how important Margaret Sanger was? Really? Okay, Hillary, do you want to exterminate the African-American people? And don't answer that. Don't answer that because your family has a pretty bad background too. And I don't just mean your family in terms of ancestors. I mean your family in terms of your husband, and the things that your family specifically has done. Let's talk about the crime bill. Yeah, Joe Biden sponsored it. You wrote it. Joe Biden's not smart enough to write the crime bill. Your husband and you called African-American young men super predators. That was you. So Hillary Clinton, yeah, you cannot separate the abortion, the economics of abortion from the founding of Planned Parenthood. I'm, I'm, you just can't do it. So if somebody tries to do that and you're having a conversation with them, please correct them. Tell them, I'm not saying you think that the African-American people should be exterminating. I'm just saying that Planned Parenthood was founded for that. The locations where Planned Parenthood clinics to this day, where they exist, is around doing that. That organization should not exist. That's it. That's all you have to say. You don't have to get beyond that. You don't have to tell them it shouldn't be. You can tell them there shouldn't be abortion clinics anywhere if that is what you believe. But please... Never let anybody support Planned Parenthood. Never. That's that's a hill worth dying on. So that's the economics of abortion. The last piece are the politics of abortion. Both parties use abortion 
uh, to maximum political effect. And the reason, of course, is we have a two-party system. That means that you've got a good guy and a bad guy, and both political parties play that game. Neither political party, by the way, really cares about the American people. They care about political power. And when I say the parties, I don't mean I'm a Republican, so I'm not talking all Republicans are good or all Republicans are bad. I'm not saying all Democrats are good. I'm not saying all Democrats are bad. I'm saying the Republican Party is corrupt to the core, just as is the Democrat Party. People, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, power is a commodity that can be bought and sold just like anything else. And the more power the government has, the more they have that they can sell. So when Republicans say they want to reduce the size of government, Rand Paul, I believe it. There are probably four or five other guys in Congress between the House and the Senate, maybe more than four or five. Maybe I'm being a little bit a little bit harsh on it, but it's, it's not very many people. The vast majority of people, the House of Representatives and the Senate, the vast majority of bureaucrats that work for the government, the vast majority of people in government, particularly at the federal level, they don't want to reduce the size of government because if they do, they have less power to sell. Now, Nancy Pelosi isn't worth $300 million or whatever. She's worth hundreds of millions. It might not be $300 million, but it's more than $200 million. The reason she's worth all that money, a lot of that is because her husband is the CEO of one of the companies in charge of building high-speed rail in California. A lot of her money is ill. A lot of her money is tax money that was granted to California to pay her husband's company to build a high-speed train that was never built. Diane Feinstein, her husband, another CEO of a company that uh, has built uh, or has not built the high-speed rail, the train to nowhere, if you will, in California. So that kind of corruption is everywhere. It's everywhere. The Clinton Foundation, incredibly corrupt. These people, they took a book out of the Jeffrey Epstein, or a page out of the Jeffrey Epstein book. His solution to not getting caught uh, for for raping underage girls, for for you know, for, for having sex with underage girls, his solution was to involve everybody in his pedophilia. He would bring somebody on his plane, and maybe today he's got 25-year-olds, come on the plane the next time. They're 20-year-old, come on the plane the next time. They're 18-year-old, come on the plane the next time. You think they're 18, they're actually 16 years old. Now he's got you. Now he's got you. So now you're implicated in his crimes. Clinton Foundation, same thing. The Clinton Foundation has several purposes. One of the primary purposes is to launder money. If you look at the Clintons going out and giving speeches in places and getting ridiculous amounts of money, Bill Clinton, $2 million to give a speech. Well, in many cases, you can find the Clinton Foundation donating money to the people that are paying them to give speeches at roughly the same time frame that they're getting paid to give those speeches. So that hard to prove it that it, that in a court of law, but that looks suspiciously like they are taking money that the Clinton Foundation has and laundering it into their own pockets. So that's one thing that the Clinton Foundation does, and there are other things that it does. Uh, but they, they implicate people. The, the Clinton Foundation doesn't just... They get other people to all kinds of crooked things with the Clinton Foundation, too. So that if you go after the Clintons, well, now you're implicated. And if you're, if you're smart, you want to be corrupt, implicate everybody you can. Get everybody just as guilty as you are. Try paint with a broad brush. Get everybody. Leave no stone unturned. If taking you down means taking down everyone, you're not going down. That's why Jeffrey Epstein had to die.
because they couldn't cover up his crimes anymore, but they certainly didn't want their own names getting brought out there too. We're never going to find out who his clients were. We're never going to find out who was on Lolita Express because if we did, they'd have to go after those people. Those people are rich and powerful. Those are congressmen. Those are judges. Those are politicians of all stripes. Those are CEOs of corporations. Of course, we're not going to get them. The, the economics don't allow it. Same thing with the... It, it's ridiculous, people. It's, it's ridiculous. The politics, uh, the, the level of, of, of corruption in Washington, D.C. is breathtaking. So, anyway, they keep us separated by making it about... You know, about 80% of the public believes that abortions should be illegal during the, far, during the first trimester. Similarly, about 80% of the public believe that abortions, excuse me, I say illegal, they should be legal during the first trimester. I think I might have said that backwards. Similarly, 80% of the population think that abortions should be illegal in the third trimester. People, the politicians wanted to address this, they could. But it's so useful as a political tool that they don't, so they won't. So so that's it. That's, that's We're out of time. We've talked about the legality, the legal arguments surrounding abortion, the moral arguments, the economic arguments, and the political arguments. So let me know what you think. You can you can reach out to Malcolm at liberty at uh, americaoutloud.com. If there are comments for me, he'll send them along to me. And uh, let us know what you think. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. And while you do that, as always, get loud, get involved on America Out Loud. Thank you. Thank you.